Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, November 5th, 2014. Now, this is a normal broadcast week for us, so we will be doing our light episode today. And we're going to be continuing with uh, Roseboro's ramblings through Genesis. Tuning in, you're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. And sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to slow down and stop and open up our Bibles and see if what people are saying actually squares with what God's Word says. Now, what we've been doing here at Fighting for the Faith, I think going way, way back to uh, our history of broadcasting, is once a week we do what we call a light episode. And what we mean by light, it's not that the topic is light, it's just that it's a singular topic, and over the years, oftentimes, I've passed the microphone off to somebody else, and we've heard good lectures on different apologetic topics or theological topics or doctrinal topics. I mean, it's... You know, if you go back through the light episodes of uh, Fighting for the Faith, there have been some stellar, uh, you know, content that we've played and broadcast here. Um, that being the case, <laughs> I think we're departing from stellar, and we're now we're we're scraping the bottom of the barrel. And uh, we've been working our way through a series of lessons that I have been teaching. And the name of the series, that what we're broadcasting it, is, is called Roseboro's Ramblings Through Genesis. Yeah, I'm a pastor, and so what I've been doing is helping my congregation work through the book of Genesis. And, uh, and you'll see that, um, that there's a lot of bunny trails, a lot of bunny trails that we go on. And I think that actually kind of adds a little bit of flavor to the, uh, the teaching uh, some may say it's obnoxious. Hopefully you don't think it's obnoxious and you find the bunny trails to be actually insightful and in helping you understand Scripture and what God's Word says. So we're going to get right to it. Here is the next installment of uh, Roseboro's Ramblings Through Genesis. Here we go. Let's pray. Lord God, as we open up with your Word, we pray that you would speak to us, help us to understand what we are to believe, teach, and confess and embrace it through faith in Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so here's the question I have for you to start off this morning in our abbreviated lesson. How do you know, how can you be confident that what we have in the Genesis account is an actual historical account? There are people out there who claim, oh, this is what we call theopoetry. Now, 
I, theo meaning God. This is some kind of God poetry. They say so that the Genesis 1 is like, it's like one of the Psalms. Or it's like that, that poem, Roses are red, violets are blue. How do you know whether or not this is history or poetry? I'll give you a hint. Scripture interprets Scripture. That helps. Okay. Huh? Did Jesus talk about it? Did Jesus... Oh, that's a good good question. Did Jesus talk about Genesis? What do you guys think? Well, isn't there a scripture that says that all scripture is God... Well, that's in First Timothy, yes. All Scripture is God-breathed. Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 3. All Scripture is God-breathed. So, um, yeah, but see, that's not quite what we're talking about here. Why would it be important if Jesus actually talks about the creation? What, what difference does that make? Because if Jesus talks about the creation, then our faith uh, you know, resides on Jesus. Okay, we're we're getting it. We're getting there. We're getting there. Let's kind of let's make that smooth that out and make it a little bit easier. So here's the, here's the idea is is that in today's world you cannot practice medicine unless you go to school and you go to medical school, right? Um, now, w- would any of you be willing to have open heart surgery from somebody who got their medical degree from a diploma mill in Mexico? No? <laughs> it has nothing to do with racism, okay? Because uh, I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not saying, you, you know, get your, you know, have heart surgery done, performed by somebody who studied medicine in Mexico. I said somebody who got their medical degree from a diploma mill in Mexico. Okay. Yeah. Big difference. Okay. There, there's some good. There are some good doctors who, uh, who are south of the border. All right. And they've they've been to reputable medical schools. Right. Okay. So we're not we're not making some kind of racist statement here. So for to make it even more clear, a Norwegian who got his d- medical degree from a diploma mill in Mexico. Okay. We, <laughs> yeah, kind of like a bubblegum machine. Yes, it's a lot like that. So would you, uh, would you want to uh, have uh, your open-heart surgery performed by somebody like that? Nope, nope. Okay, so credentials kind of mean something. Let me ask you another question here. Uh, you farmers here, how many of you guys would like me to plan the planting of the crops next year and the harvest for your fields? Any takers? Yeah, you me do it. Any takers? Come on. I can offer my services cheap. I'm telling you, really cheap. I'll make it really worth your, your while. Still, still no... You, you farmers, I mean, what is the deal with you? I mean, I feel in my heart that I could really be a good farmer. <laughs> Isn't that enough? <laughs> You're just talking about Genesis right now? Yeah, we're talking about Genesis, but I'm using a metaphor here and using a little bit of sarcastic humor because Robin loves it so much um, to kind of make a point. Okay, how about all the times that they actually find tombs or graves of people that are referred to as those? Okay, well, historically speaking, yes, there are people. There are people that we have. We know where they're buried. This is true. So we know that at least part of the Old Testament is historical. We know this. But we're talking about the Genesis account. How did we get here? In all of human history, is there anybody who we could point to and say that 
person was an eyewitness to the Genesis account in Genesis 1 1? Jesus. Jesus. Right. Jesus. Think about it. Who is Jesus? He's the Son of God. Right? That's his claim. He is none other than God in human flesh. So wouldn't Jesus qualify as an eyewitness to the accounts in the Old Testament? I mean, a couple weeks ago, we read, um, we read about Jesus having this argument with the Pharisees or the Jews regarding Abraham. And Jesus spoke about Abraham as if he'd met Abraham. And the Jews picked right up on it. You are not 50 years old yet, and you've met Abraham, they said, right? How can Jesus talk that way about Abraham? Well, he's the God who made Abraham, right? So the question then is, is this. If we were to tie, kind of tie these themes together... Who has the credentials that can speak credibly to whether or not what we have in the book of Genesis is history or poetry? Jesus. Okay, now, what are his credentials, by the way? Well, he claims to be the Son of God, but let's work with me here for a second here. I told this joke a couple years ago here, but it bears repeating. Um, Just because you claim to be the Son of God doesn't mean you're the Son of God. There's a story told about a gentleman who was traveling around visiting different insane asylums in order to kind of check out you know whether or not they were kind of up to code right and he considered himself something kind of an amateur psychiatrist type and so he was visiting this one insane asylum and off over in the the group room there was a gentleman who was walking around with his arm in his coat like this and kind of you know, proudly. And so he walked up to him. He says, sir, what's, what's your name? He says, my name is Napoleon Bonaparte. Right? And so the guy tried to help him out. He says, well, how do you know you're Napoleon Bonaparte? He says, because God told me. Right? And then from across the room, another guy shouts out, no, I didn't. I never said that. <laughs> right? So Jesus... Yeah, he claims to be the son of God. But what, are, what can we point to that backs up the claim? And Stephen, keep your mouth shut. He was born of Mary. Yes, he was born of the Virgin Mary, yes. Mary, the angel came down to Mary and told her that she would have a son. Mm-hmm. So it's proven right there. How does the fact that he, the claim is that he was born of the Virgin Mary prove that he is that? Because the angel said that. Because the angel said. Because the angel said. Did you see this angel? What color was his hair? How, what were the dimensions on his wingspan? When I was growing up, my mother told me to believe what my elders tell me and to trust. And they told me this and I believe. Okay, well, sometimes, I hate to say this, elders can be wrong. Well, don't tell my mother. Okay, I, I, I will respectfully not mention that to your mother. Okay. Mark? He fulfilled prophecies that were so astronomical that he couldn't not have been. That's right. Now, this is something we will talk about when we get into the Advent season as we're getting closer to Christmas. One of the things we'll take a look at in our midweek Advent services, we're going to take a look at some of the prophecies regarding Jesus. This, In fact, when you read the book of Acts, when you look at the apostles, and they're traveling throughout the Mediterranean, planting churches, they were always going to synagogues. Two things they would argue. They would argue, 
as eyewitnesses to the resurrection that Jesus was the Messiah, but they'd also argue from fulfilled prophecy. And when you take a look at the details of prophecy regarding Jesus, I mean, it's either Jesus or nobody. That's what it comes down to, because nobody could have fulfilled these prophecies. And we're not talking about the Nostradamus-type prophecies. You ever seen, like, History Channel, Nostradamus, prophet of, you know, whatever, you know. And you read, if you ever read Nostradamus's quatrains, <laughs> I mean, that, those things are just esoteric. I mean, they're so difficult. They, they don't even sound like they're written by somebody who's lucid. And so you can kind of read into those things whatever you want. But, for instance, okay, you read Psalm 22. Who has Psalm 22? Take a look at that real quick. Open up to Psalm 22. Let me uh, open up my Bible while I'm at it. You got it? Okay, Janet, read to us Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me so far from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, and I am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as a holy one. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. And they cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. Keep going. Yeah, keep going. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by men and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord, but the Lord rescued him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's word, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of fashion encircle me. Roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is turned to wax, it is melted away within me. My strength is dried up like potsherd, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I declare your name to my brothers. In the congregation I will praise you. You who hear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or disclaimed the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. From you comes my praise. And the great assembly, before those who fear you, will I fulfill my vows. The poor will eat and be satisfied. They who seek the Lord will praise him. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations will bow down before him. Okay. All right. Who's that psalm about? Well, Jesus. How do you know? Because it says who he was born, how he died. Uh huh. How does it say in Psalm 22 that Jesus is going to die? My hand. 
they, they, yeah, they pierced my hands and my, what does it say? My hands and my feet. Right. Uh-huh. Yep. That's right. Now, Jesus, when he's hanging on the cross, does he have the ability to fulfill this prophecy? Did he force the Romans to crucify him? Did Jesus pay money to the Roman soldiers to divide his clothes and cast lots for them? No. No. And by the way, this psalm was written, I think, at least four to six hundred years before crucifixion was invented as a form of capital punishment. And yet it describes it as his hands and his feet being pierced, right? Okay, so when we talk about fulfilled prophecy, that's just the tip of the iceberg. When you read the Old Testament, you find out it is teeming with prophecies regarding Jesus, both specific and typologically, which is absolutely fascinating. I mean, the Bible is not like any book out there. So you're right. Fulfilled prophecy argues strongly that Jesus is who he claimed to be. Okay, But what's the ultimate proof that Jesus is who he claimed to be? You remember when Jesus went into the temple and he drove the money changers out, right? And the um, chief priests basically said, what sign can you give us to show that you have the authority to do these things? And Jesus said, tear down this temple and I'll build it again in three days. Which means... Right. Okay. And they, they thought he's they thought he's pointing to the, the the temple, Herod's temple, right? And they said it's taken forty six years to build this temple, and you're going to rebuild it again in three days. And what does the text say? That he was talking about his body. He was talking about his body. So how do we know that Jesus has the authority to do the things that he did? That he is who he claimed to be. Well, on the third day he rose again bodily from the grave. Muhammad is still in the grave. Buddha is still in the grave. Hare Krishna, you know, Sung Young Moon, they're all still in the grave. Jesus rose from the grave. He claimed to be God, and we have eyewitness testimony that says on the third day after he was crucified and killed, he was alive. They saw him physically alive. These are pretty good credentials. So that's the idea here. So if we were to talk about anyone out there, who is, who is the greatest authority in Regarding scripture, it has to be Jesus. It doesn't matter if you get a PhD today from the top theological school. Your credentials cannot trump Jesus' credentials. Jesus doesn't have PhD after his name. He has son of God. So the question that comes up is, what did Jesus think about Genesis? Did he think Adam and Eve were mythological people? that the creation was really not that, right? What did Jesus think? Well, let's take a look. Matthew chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 3 through 6, and I'll read it for you. Here's what it says. The Pharisees came up to him, that would be Jesus, and they tested him by asking, Is it lawful to uh, to divorce one's wife for any cause? (laughs) And subtext is, yeah, you wish, right? What is with these Pharisees? So he says, Have you not read? He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Does that tell you what Jesus thinks about what happened in Genesis 1? He says, He who created them created them male and female. And he said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So there are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Have you not read? 
What was Jesus' view of the Old Testament then? Did Jesus think it was truly the Word of God? Yeah, he did. Did he think Genesis is history? Well, he's quoting it here as if it's history, is it not? Is he not? Now, here's the funny thing. You know, from time to time, um, you may have noticed this if you follow me on Facebook or on Twitter, from time to time there are people who want to, let's just say, have heated exchanges with me. They want to express their opinions. And, well, recently, and this is not the the first time this has happened, but this happens with some regularity, recently I had a gentleman who identifies himself as an emergent postmodern liberal. And the, um, the gist of his comment to me was that I was pretty much a doofus and a buffoon because I believed that Jesus believed that the Old Testament was the Word of God and that Genesis was actual history. And so his response to me, you know, after I responded to him, he basically said, listen, you got to understand, Jesus was a man of his times. If Jesus were alive today, he'd be an evolutionist. So if Jesus, come on, Jesus being a man of his time, he just didn't have access to Darwin's origin of species. If only Jesus were alive today, he would be an evolutionist. See, here's the thing. Didn't Jesus rise from the grave? He is alive today, isn't he? Yeah. Now, Scripture, by the way, tells us that Jesus is God, but also Jesus, the Scripture tells us that God cannot lie. So if Jesus is wrong here, and Adam and Eve were not really created by God like he said in Matthew 19, is Jesus really God? No, he's not. He's not. Because he's giving us false information. So as silly as this sounds, as Christians, we stick to our guns. So when we talk about the armor of God, right? Okay, you've got defensive armor. What's our only offensive weapon? The Bible, the Word, right? Okay, whatever you do, if you're sharing your faith with somebody who's skeptical, never allow yourself to be disarmed. You stick to the text. And you say, I'm sorry, Jesus said this. And then they come back and they taunt you or say bad things about you or whatever. You say, I'm sorry, but Jesus said this. Okay? (laughs) Okay? That's what I mean. Don't let yourself be disarmed. Don't get into philosophy. Don't get into this other stuff. Jesus is the only eyewitness to this that has lived that we know of, right? And he says that they were created. But that usually... Yes, it does. It does. Okay? But let's talk about why that is. Yes, it does tick some people off. Let's do a little bit of Bible, though. Okay? So we're not gonna, I'm not going to allow myself to be disarmed by such a, a statement by David. But it's a good statement, by the way. Romans chapter 1. I want to read to you something. And this is also going to kind of give us a little bit of an understanding of then how we share our faith with people. You're right. You say something like that, it's going to upset them. But watch this. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. Here's what it says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. You know why somebody doesn't want to hear about Jesus being God and that he created? It's because it says right here, They're suppressing the truth in wickedness or unrighteousness. Now, this is an important thing. There is not a single person on the planet who claims to be an atheist who's telling the truth. 
How do I know this? Because Scripture says so. Let's keep reading. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because they because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power, and His divine nature, they have been clearly seen being understood from what was made, so that men are without excuse. Listen, it goes on. For although they knew God... They neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another, and they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now this is important. This is critical. When you share your faith with somebody who is an unbeliever, don't argue evidences with them. This text makes it clear there's no such thing as an atheist. There is no such thing. The atheist is the one who has actively suppressed the truth of God that they know is true. So here's how we share our faith instead. If you talk to somebody and say, well, I don't believe in God. Number one, internally, inside you can say, I know that's not true because Scripture says so. And so here's generally how I handle atheists. It's a good way to handle them. You don't have to know all of their arguments. You have to understand this. You are an ambassador of the kingdom of God. As an ambassador, you have a message to give. So when you talk to an atheist, here's what I say to them when they say, they say I don't believe in God. I know that what you're telling me is not true. I know that you believe that there's a God and you know there's a God. So I'm not going to argue this with you. Instead, I have good news to tell you. The God that you're angry at, the God whom you are suppressing the truth in your unrighteousness, He's given me a message to give to you. And here's the message. He loves you. He's unilaterally acted on your behalf to die for your sins. And He's calling you to repent and to believe in Him and to be forgiven. It's all a free gift. And I know you're angry at Him, but He's not angry at you right now. He wants you to believe and to live. I've done this with several atheists. One of them was reduced to tears when I did that. Because the thing is, is that the atheist is all girded up, ready to argue with you, right? They, oh, I, evolution, this and that, and what about these things and all this kind of stuff, okay? Whenever you play their game on their turf, it's like playing chess, and it's 20 moves to stalemate, if you're a good player. So don't play the game. What does Scripture say about the one who doesn't believe that there's a God? That he's wise or that he's what? A fool. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. Not the wise. The fool. So be merciful. Understand the person is being foolish. But don't call them a fool to their face. The idea is, is don't play on their turf. And you basically say, you don't believe in God? That's not true. I know for a fact that you believe there's a God. And when I talk to atheists this way, oftentimes I'll say things like, I have a message to give you from God. Here's the message. He bled and died for you. And then I usually say this, and you also already know that what I'm telling you is the truth. 
And I've never had them challenge me on that. It's weird. It changes the game altogether. But see, the thing is, we're ambassadors of the kingdom of God. We have a message to proclaim, the good news that Christ bled and died for our sins. And unfortunately, one of the things I've seen, even in my own life, and I've seen kind of take place in the world of apologetics, is that there's these people out there who their pride is puffed up because they've learned to out-argue people regarding particular you know, things. They, they've taken on you know, Richard Dawkins or Anthony Flew or whatever, right? And, and so, so much of their self-worth is caught up in their ability to be that person who was able to stand his ground against said atheist. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to proclaim Christ. Now, that's not to say that apologetic arguments don't have their place or that evidences don't have their place, but I've found that evidences are a very good thing to discuss in church because they help bolster our faith. Because when you're brought to penitent faith in Christ, these things help you so that people don't come in and snatch your faith because those atheists are wascally, right? (laughs) They're wascally. But oftentimes, if you just take the time to examine their arguments, they don't hold up. All right, we're going to pause right there, and we're going to pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, the balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings through the book of Genesis. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> In other news, it seems that the inhabitants of Earth are not the only ones subject to economic slumps. Jensen Franklin, through direct revelation from God, has given us information that says that the unemployment rate within God's own army has drastically risen. Take a listen. An angel came and opened the doors and broke the chains. My point to you is simply this. When you don't pray, angels become unemployed. The greatest tragedy of prayerlessness is the unemployment of angels. Because when you pray, God gives angels their their orders. When you pray, the spiritual battle in the heavenlies begins to be armed with the prayers of the saints and people binding. And whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. (laughs) 
Attention angels, this is uh, the Holy Spirit. I have an announcement regarding the um, latest downturn in the economy. And I understand that a lot of you have been unemployed lately due to a lack of prayer. And I wish there was something that I could do about this, but you know, I feel so powerless when it comes to these kind of things. Um, we, uh, we've uh, created a welfare uh, basket, a spiritual relief type of thing. And uh, so those of you who have been hit hard by the latest downturn and are now finding yourselves unemployed, uh, please uh, proceed over to the uh, <clears throat> relief office and uh, we'll see what we can do to help you out. Thank you. All right, all right, everyone just calm down. Thank you. Now, I know that none of you care to be here, but since we're experiencing a worldwide shortage of prayer, it would behoove you to keep calm and allow us to do our jobs. Gabriel, put your wings down. There's not nearly enough room for that. And Michael, Michael, don't cut in line. I know you're the big cheese around here, but all of us have been affected equally. Wait your turn. Next! What's your name? George. George? Yeah, whatever. Where'd you fly in from? South Orange County, California. California? That's frontline enemy territory. How many tours have you done down in that kill box? About nine. Oh, you're quite the veteran. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's Rick Warren's territory, right? Yeah, he's got most of the people down there praying for purpose, better sex, other useless junk like that. Those idiots don't even realize they don't need God for such things. I hear you on that one. Now, I know it's not much, but this is what I can give you. It's our premium spiritual relief basket. Thank you. I'll be sure to put this to good use. <laughs> I know you will. Next! What's your name, bub? Harold. Okay. Harold, where are you hailing from? Charlotte, North Carolina. Good gravy. You must really be hurting. Everyone knows that Stephen Furtick's neck of the woods is just filled to bursting with heretical slop. Uh, what are they praying for nowadays? It's the strangest thing. They keep praying to the sun, telling it to stand still. I don't get it. Those morons! Don't they know nothing about astrophysics? If they were to stop the sun, they'd burn half the world to a crisp. Moon rocks have higher IQs than those dingbats. All right, got a relief basket for you. I greatly appreciate the help. <laughs> I know, you're welcome. Next! And your name is... Bob. Bob? I swear, angels these days. All right, Bob, lay it on me. Where you from? Vatican City. Vatican City? <laughs> Are those bozos still praying to dead people and inanimate objects? More than ever. You know, that really frosts my cookies. I mean, seriously. Take Mary, for example. That poor woman has been dead for millennia. She's not answering prayers. Who is the dumb schmuck that thought praying to her would do anything in the first place? Humans! They're so darn gullible sometimes. Anyway, here's your relief basket. Sorry. Just getting real tired of that. Happens every time I give someone a basket. Next! Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's 
featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor never actually teaches God's Word in depth. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. That is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support, because we cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the balance of today's Roseboro's ramblings through the book of Genesis. Here we go. So how do we know that Genesis is history? Because Jesus says so. And when we look in the, in the New Testament, Jesus believed that Adam and Eve were historical people. He believed that Abel was a historical person. He believed that Noah was a historical person. And Jesus believed in the worldwide global flood. Uh Uh-huh. Jesus talked like he knew Abraham. So, it's just real simple. The idea then is is that we have this good news to proclaim. We don't have to play the atheists on their turf. And you just trust in Jesus. And see, that's the thing. You know, 1 Peter says, "...to set apart Christ as Lord." And always be ready to give an answer and a reason for the hope that lies within you. But the reason and the hope that lies within you only comes after set apart Christ as Lord. If Christ is Lord, you just stick by Him. You just say, I'm just a simple Christian. And I think it's just really simple. Jesus believed that Genesis was historical because it was. And as soon as you die and rise again from the grave, then you'll have the credentials to talk on the level at Jesus. Until you do that, I'm going to go with Jesus. It's just that simple. It'll drive them crazy. And they'll accuse you of all kinds of things. Like, oh, that's circular logic. You're using the Bible to prove the Bible. No, I'm not. Actually, think about this. One book, right? This isn't a book. This is a library. If I quote Jesus to talk about Genesis, am I quoting the same book? No. I'm quoting a different book in the same library. It's not circular logic. So you can quote the Bible to support the Bible, 
That, you can absolutely do that. Now, of course, that we're cheating because there's one common author to every one of the books, and that's God the Holy Spirit. But the atheists, they don't believe that anyway, so let them work, work that out. So let's come back now to uh, Genesis. Let's go back to Genesis, point out some things along the way. And again, my apologies. I'm going to read from my translation. And it seems like we keep getting nowhere, but we're actually getting somewhere. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Shh. I got you guys figured out. Yeah. Yeah. This is, by the way, there's a, there's a term for this in, um, in theology. We actually call this the hermeneutical spiral. And, and here's the idea, is that have you all noticed in your own life that when you were young, you read the Bible, right? And as you were reading it, certain things kind of popped at it, and there were certain truths that kind of you know, stuck in your mind, right? Well, now that you're older, you go back and you read the Bible, and now that you have a little bit more depth to it, or a passage that you've read a hundred times all of a sudden comes crackling to life, Right? And it's not that the Bible has changed. It's that you have. And the reality is, is that every time you go through the hermeneutical spiral, you're going around and around and around, and we're meditating and learning God's Word. With each time around the track, you're going to learn more and more and more and dig deeper and deeper and deeper. I can tell you this. If you think about it this way, is that here in this time-space continuum, think about size and proportion here. Okay, If we were to get an electron microscope, we can drill down into the electrons in the carpet, right? Go all the way down to the point where the visible eye can't possibly see things this small, yet we know that the world is consisted of these things that are tiny, right? Really microscopic. But then as you zoom out, we come to this, this magnification level, but now let's zoom out the whole planet. The sun, the moon, the stars, the solar system, and then zoom out from here, the Milky Way galaxy. And zoom out from there, the universe as a whole, with all of the tens and billions of, of galaxies out there, right? So you think about that. There's so much depth in the creation. God's Word is very similar to this. God's Word is very similar to this. You can study this book exhaustively, day by day by day, and you will only begin to scratch the surface regarding what's going on in here. This is a deep ocean, a huge universe. And so I never tire of learning God's word because with each pass, it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. So although it seems like, you know, three weeks in a row, four weeks in a row, Chris has been talking about <laughs> same passage. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. It's the hermeneutical spiral. We're going deeper and deeper with each pass. In the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. And see, chapter 1 of the Bible is this 30,000-foot overview of creation. Chapter 2 drills down into some of the detail. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was brooding over the face of the waters. God said, let there be light. There was light. God saw the light, for it was good. God divided between the light and between the darkness. And God called the light, or like I pointed out last week, God called to the light day, and he called to the darkness night. That's what it says. And there was evening, and there was morning, day one. God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and there was separating between the waters to waters. 
And God made the expanse and separated between the waters that were under the expanse and between the waters that were over the expanse. God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning, day two. God said, collect the waters from under the heavens into one place and let appear dry ground, and it was so. God called the dry ground earth and collected waters. He called seas And God saw that it was good. And God said, Let the earth sprout grass, plants producing seed, fruit, trees making fruit. And the earth brought forth grass, herbage yielding seed according to its kind, and trees making fruit in which it's their seed according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. The um, 18th century Lutheran pastor Valerius Herberger quite a name. It's a mouthful of a name. In his sermons on this text, he talks about how all this vibrant life is coming, and he says, God is preparing for a wedding. God is preparing for a wedding. I think that's a beautiful context to think about what we're looking at in Genesis 1 here. You know, we've all, we've all, we're all married, right? (laughs) Or we've all participated, at least in some degree, you know, with someone's wedding. And you think about all the fuss that goes into the event, right? And, and it's such an important thing. And, and then when it all finally comes together with all of the ribbons and the flowers and the dresses and the tuxedos, right? In a sense, I love that picture of this as this is God preparing for a wedding. And who's going to get married? Adam and Eve. This is what God has in mind all along. You know, he's going to bring forth Adam, and then from there he's going to bring forth Eve. And so God, in all of this fuss and bother, these are the preparations for a wedding. And it's a beautiful picture, beautiful picture. And that helps us to keep the context of what goes wrong so that we understand how Christ fixes things, how we as Christians collectively were considered to be the bride of Christ. This is a big thing that's important in here. So it was evening in the morning, in the morning, the day three. God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate between the day and between the night and let them be for signs and for appointed times and seasons and for days and years. And they have been for lights in the expanse of the heavens to shine upon the earth and it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser night light to rule the night and the stars. And God set or gave them in the heavens to give light upon the earth. Beautiful stuff, right? Beautiful stuff. And it continues. Hang on a second here. I'm going to switch over now. Although there's a, there's a second part to this I have to get to back in my translation. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in numbers and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and all the creatures that move along the ground. I like the Hebrew here. It's a 
It's a little bit more graphic. The creepy things. You know, the creeping little critters, right? You know? So I, I call them the creepers in my translation. So God made all the creepers. So <laughs> <laughs> they move along the ground according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. Notice here, with each passing day, and notice how God creates. He speaks, and it's so. Right? Remember our hymn from today. Talk about justification. Thy strong word bespeaks us righteous. We're declared righteous by Christ, by God himself. This is the great doctrine of justification. So for each and every one of us, God has spoken. And you know what he says? Innocent, forgiven, redeemed, purchased, one. He speaks and it's so. You can't undo what God has done. You can't undo what he said about you. He says you're justified. It's all good. So God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that move along the ground, wild animals each according to its kind. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, livestock according to their kind, and all the creepers that move along the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. God said, now here's another passage that hints at the doctrine of the Trinity. Then God said, let us make man in our image. In our image. And you sit there and grammatically you go, what is going on? Who's God talking to? Has he got a mouse in his pocket? What's going on here? Right? Let us make man. This is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit saying that. In our likeness. And let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over the livestock, over the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. And here's the beautiful thing is is that God in this creation that he has made, that he's spoken into existence, his initial plan was that he would set up to govern this creation, to care and to tend for it, humanity made in his image, perfect representatives of God on earth. Sounds beautiful, doesn't it? It's still going to happen. New heavens, though, not this one. New earth, not this one. Because things went terribly wrong here. So let us make man in our image. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. I want to point this out. It does not just say male. It says male and female. Every human being has dignity, male and female, because originally all of us are created in the image of God. Now the image of God is broken because of sin. But if anyone tells you that they're a Christian and that somehow females are of a lesser creature or than men, you correct them. God created them male and female, and they together both are created in the image of God. We're different, but we're all made in the image of God. So God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food. That's right. Originally, there's no carnivores here. We're, we're all fruit, fruit and vegetarian types, right? So is it, what, I don't know. Is it truly vegetarian if it's just fruit or fruit and vegetables? I don't know. 
No meat here, right? Huh? Is it vegan? I don't know. I don't know what the term is. But yeah, that's originally how we were created. They'll be yours for food. And notice, God gives it. Notice here it doesn't say, and um, here we're going to set up an economy. And um, to see these trees over here, they're only, you know, like, you know, 50 cents a bushel, you know, right? He says he gives, he gives, he gives. This is the nature of God, to give. If you are a creature, you are given to. This is one of the reasons why salvation is by grace through faith alone. It's received as a gift in the same way that the food that was given to us on this planet was given by God as a gift. He says, I give it to you. Give it to you. Right? You say, yeah, but I got it. No. No, you don't got a nothing. It's all gift. Yeah. Money wasn't invented until after the fall. Think about that. So I give you every give. I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit in it. They will be yours for food. To all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds of the air, and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. Give, and it was so. God saw all that He made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all of their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day, made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. First hint at a Sabbath, by the way. Although there's no command here to rest, you know, in the creation. There are some who would say, well, see, it's right here in Genesis. That means you have to keep... No, there's no command. It's just telling you that God blessed the seventh day, right? And so we will leave it there, and next week we'll pick up at chapter 2, verse 4, when the plot thickens, right? So the plot will thicken deeply next week. All right, we'll see you then. So what'd you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.